Welcome to Solutions Cast, a CFC podcast that highlights cooperative network projects and leader stories, as well as economic and energy industry insights. I'm your host, Christine Pachenik. Electric utility infrastructure planning is a dynamic field at the forefront of modern energy systems. As the energy needs of our members evolve and environmental concerns grow, the electric utility industry is undergoing transformative changes. In part one of this two-part episode, Infrastructure Planning as a Team Sport, we delve into the crucial role of infrastructure planning in meeting demand, enhancing grid resilience, and navigating the complexities of an ever-changing energy landscape. Joining me to explore the exciting challenges and innovations shaping our cooperative industry are key leaders of the Wright-Hennepin Cooperative Electric Association team. This includes Tim Sullivan, President and CEO, and Brian Swanson, CFO. Thanks, Tim and Brian, for joining. Happy to. Delighted. Thank you for the opportunity. Wonderful to have you here. Now, today, we're really going to be focusing on this infrastructure planning piece. Tim, when I originally reached out to you, I think I had something a little bit different in mind. You took the idea and actually drove it into something that we're going to go much more in depth on, which I'm very excited about. Right now, I want to talk to you and Brian about infrastructure planning, kind of defining that at your co-op and how it works. So at the highest level, I would say it's anything involving long-term capital spending. Now, much of capital spending also includes an operations component, as your listeners will know. So, for example, if you're building a substation, it's not only the steel and the transformers and all of the equipment and materials. Sometimes you'll have an operating budget related to, you know, labor, for example, on that. But the key is anything that impacts long-term capital. So to give you a sense for scale, uh, Wright Hennepin is about $120 million uh, revenue per year, cooperative, and our capital spend total all in is about a fifth of that, uh, a little north of $20 million. And so that is a very, very significant component of our long-term financing needs. And it has rate implications, it has uh, service implications, and and the rest. In fact, to take it uh, another step, out of that $120 roughly $80 plus is power supply. And if you take the second biggest component alone, it would be capital. Now, there's labor and uh, all of the other uh, costs areas of an electric cooperative, but capital collectively is the second largest component of that overall revenue picture, and therefore it requires a very high level of focus and priority. You have kind of a unique view, maybe more futuristic, of how you expect your team to work for this infrastructure planning. Isn't that right? Well, I'd I'd like to think so. Mostly it's about, I I would say, you know, we consider infrastructure at Ray Hennepin a team sport. Traditionally, I would say for most electric cooperatives, capital has been more reserved for engineering and operations with some carryover and impact with the CFO and the financial planning group and certainly the CEO. But here, given its long-term implications, there's a seat at the table for marketing. There's a seat at the table for our beneficial electrification efforts, for our holding company which is a set of diversified services that generate about $13 million a year at Wright Hennepin. And so we've taken that very broad-based approach, um, mostly because it is such an important item and because it touches on so many different aspects of the business, not just traditional poles and wires and transformers, 
but things like technology. We have a generation fleet. A generation fleet, for purposes here, is a set of diesel-powered generators at commercial and industrial customer sites. So, and that's actually supervised by our holding business. So we have a wide range of capital needs and investments. It includes things like our facilities, our headquarters. Uh, we now have a 27-year-old building. We need to keep that updated. It includes all of your IT infrastructure, uh, all of those technology investments, whether it's servers or uh, long-term hardware needs is part of that picture. So again, it's much broader than the traditional sort of operations, engineering, uh, finance trifecta, I'd say. All right. And that makes complete sense to me. Introduction of technology, how that also flows into your operations, it it affects everything. So kind of working on that from a team perspective and also the timeline of how quickly things change really makes a difference now in infrastructure planning. Yes, very well said. You spoke a little bit about Wright Hennepin. Can you go more in depth into Wright Hennepin and also what you're seeing in terms of infrastructure changes today that you're currently planning for um, and how you're going about those? Sure. So just a quick thumbnail on Wright Hennepin. We serve about 59,000 consumers in western Hennepin County. Hennepin County is the largest county in Minnesota. Uh, Minneapolis is the county seat. So we serve about 15 miles straight west of Minneapolis, all the way to the Wright County border, which is the next county west, and then more traditional cooperative service territory in, in much of Wright County. So I would say the eastern half, roughly, of our service territory is a lot of suburban subdivisions, some exurban areas, and then Wright County is more traditional uh, cooperative service territory. Uh, we're a growing area, as you can imagine, on the, the edge of a, uh, the Twin Cities Metroplex. So we have high growth demands in general. Uh, but now with the electric vehicle revolution on the uh, precipice of really taking off uh, quickly, combined with population growth and energy use growth, uh, we have to bring our A-game on capital. Great. That is one thing that I want to touch on electrification of the transportation sector, and you're starting to see it, how that plays a role in your infrastructure planning. But first, I want to take a step back. How do you go about starting this infrastructure plan? What's the the length of time that you look at? And how do you get your board of directors involved? Most cooperatives would be familiar with the basic RUS requirements in this area, which have really driven planning for a very long time. And RUS does have some expectation that you have a 10-year plan. But I would say the most common frame of reference for a management team or a board of directors is the three to five-year construction work plan, usually, although not always, financed through RUS. Given the size and scale of the electric vehicle revolution, certainly in what we anticipate in our service territory, three to five years is simply inadequate. Three to five years in uh, electric utility terms is almost a blink of an eye. Three to five years is about what it takes, certainly in our part of the world, to even site a single substation, much less to provide all the feeder lines and all the engineering analysis and all of the financing available to do that. So we've taken a very long-range 10-year approach, and we selected 10 years very specifically. Uh, We thought anything past 10 years gets really iffy, really difficult to pin down in terms of having practical impact on daily planning, but as well past that three to five year financing, 
uh, horizon that uh, we've typically taken a look at. And that 10 years is really necessary. Many of the systems uh, listening are going to be familiar with what we call the EV hockey stick, right? It starts out slow and then the growth rate is up and to the left and it accelerates, particularly at an inflection point a few years out. Now, systems will differ at how quickly that growth rate will impact them on their systems. But what it told us, especially in the edge of a metro area, a high education area, pretty high income area, high home ownership, that we're going to be on the front edge of that revolution. And that means we don't have a lot of room to get this wrong. We have to get it right. Bear in mind how critical uh, infrastructure planning is. You cannot be late. You have to deliver the infrastructure before somebody needs a, an electron. You also don't want to be too early because once you're putting in poles, wires, transformers, all of the infrastructure and it's sitting there unused or underused, you are essentially not properly using, you're not exercising proper fiduciary responsibility over your members' money. The challenge is how do you get it right? We have done a very extensive study. We've hired a, a consultant to help us through that, to take a look at top to bottom, demographics, long-term business growth plans, city uh, planning, uh, city and county planning horizons, what our traditions and history have been, our historical growth rate, what the average life expectancy, if you will, of our different infrastructure classes are, substations and poles and wires, to try to get a look at all of that. And once you put all that filter together, we try to come up with what our CFO, Brian Swanson, likes to call a between-the-lines plan. In other words, not too high, not too low, something that we can course correct on, but that more or less gets us on the right growth path. We really encourage others to take a long-term view. Uh, I'll just take a step back in the same way that on the bulk transmission system, we're seeing the single biggest build-out probably in 50 years, maybe since the inception of the electric utility grid, now almost 100 years ago, we're going to see something similar on the distribution side. And we have to be prepared for it. So many good points there. I mean, knowing your membership, knowing what they want, knowing that economic growth that is occurring, your CNI customers, how all of those are impacting your system. And it sounds like you working with that third party is one of the main steps you're taking to gain that understanding. Yeah, I, I, I think you've said, and I really want to stress this for listeners, the traditional approach for electric cooperatives has been to take a look at the historical growth rate and then maybe add three, four, five percent a year. Maybe it's slower if you're in a lower growth area, one, two, three percent a year. And so at least for many decades, made planning for most systems anyway, pretty predictable, pretty reliable, pretty linear in terms of the growth rate. That is not the world we're in now. Certainly not the world that Wright Hennepin is in now. To give you a sense for scale, our 2019 infrastructure spend was about $12 million a year. In 2023, so less than five years later, it's up 60% to around 20 million. We, we believe that will be closer to 25 million in the next three years. So bear in mind, that means your capital spend will have doubled, will have doubled in less than a decade. 
And I don't believe that's overstated. If anything, uh, our view is that it might be a bit conservative. So I can't go from $12 million to $25 million without planning and without coming back to our board with a very detailed point of view around why we're spending those dollars, how we help uh, hope to build out our system to accommodate EV growth and our membership needs. Again, I just want to stress to those listening, this is this has become a top priority issue uh, in the cooperative management suite and in the boardroom in my juncture. All right. Now, I'm going to toss it actually over to Brian because, Please. Brian, it sounds like you have a CEO who's saying, well, our capital spend is going to double in a decade. What? How does that make you feel? And what... what <laughs> Because you're now given this ball of, okay, this is what we have to do. We need the money to do it and the steps to make sure that we're responsible for our members in the way that we do it. So, you know, you're looking at rate increases, borrowing, what are you doing with equity? What does that look like for you? When do you come into this process and talk to that a little bit? Certainly. Thank you, Christine. First off, it's a great opportunity for me and our team. We have the opportunity to impact the future. That's paramount to us and make an impact positively on the members that we serve. How do we do that? We start by having a long range financial management plan. And that plan looks at capital needs, looks at operational needs. So not only as we're putting infrastructure in the ground, we have to maintain that infrastructure. There's a cost to that. And how do we do that? That's talking with our teams. Tim mentioned this earlier. We're in close communication with our different departments, our different businesses. That's paramount to success. And further along those lines of communication, it's knowing where are we going, what things that may impact us in the future. And then from my chair, it's working to put a plan together. And when do we start that planning? We started actually before we're specking out projects, before we actually have real dollars in place. It's making sure that we're adhering to our ratios, our percentages, our key board directives, and that is around safety, reliability, and affordability. And I'll touch on this a little bit later in the conversation today on how we look at that and what's crucial to us. But just at a high point, that's what we're starting at. And that's what we look at from our membership and also communicating clearly with our board and with our president and CEO, Tim. You've both just in the last couple minutes here brought your board up. What's your relationship like with your board in terms of infrastructure planning? With our board, it's communicate early and often. Right. And we do that again through that long range financial management plan. And we do is we don't share the entire plan as much. We share a summary, high level, what's important? What do our rates look like? What does the member bill look like? Not just this year or next year, but several years out. Our goal is to reduce volatility in the member's bill, create stability again around safety, reliability, and affordability for our membership. And making sure that our board can articulate that to the member that's talking to them at the grocery store or at church or wherever that is to communicate them quickly and accurately what our plan is and how we're going to achieve success. Yeah, I, I would say at the highest level, it's early education. This is really a credit to, to Brian Swanson, but when he came to Right Hand of Penn in 2019, he challenged us early, I think, in a great way to say, we really need to take a more comprehensive, detailed look at our long-range capital spending, and, and we really need to stress its importance with the board. And, and we actually added it as a strategic objective. Those of uh, your listeners who are familiar with the Kaplan-Norton strategy execution map, we, we call it P6 on our map of success. And it basically says, uh, ensure timely investments in long-term capital. 
And boards don't immediately think of capital. They'll tend to think of work plans and overall budgets and overall rate impact. But again, if you're doubling a line item in four years, or excuse me, 10 years, you're going up 60% in four years, boy, do you take notice. And the management team must make the board aware of why that is. And it's, as Brian said, it's impact then on rates. It's impact on your capital credit rotation. It's impact on your uh, work plan, your ability to actually deliver. Sometimes you need, for example, to get outside contractors, or you may decide you want to increase uh, the number of employees working on this area. Early education from the management team to the board around why we need more capital investment, its impact on rates, its long-term benefits for reliability, and, and I, I just think it goes back to the original concept of electric utilities. We have an obligation to serve. We have an obligation to serve. We don't get to say, we are going to pick and choose how fast we want to grow. Our members need our power. We have to have just-in-time delivery to make that all work. We need a pipeline and a plan that delivers that infrastructure in a timely way. So in general, I would say, Educate early and often, talk about it before it's necessary, give uh, your board a long-term view of its impacts. And, and just a shout out to our board here who's been terrific on this point. We started this education effort probably not long after Brian came and our board has been very supportive. Now I'd like to think that support's been earned by us really outlining those implications. But when you have this big an item changing this much, your board has to know about it early and often. That makes complete sense. I think education and information, the transparency of it and keeping everybody informed, knowing what's going on, repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating because one message said 10 times is much more effective than 10 messages said one time. Yes, well said, Christine. What do you do when you experience a shift in what this looks like? So you have a board, new information comes to light, you decide that you have to make a strategic shift. How do you handle this? It's a great point. Actually, we're sort of in the middle of one now. Brian, do you want to take a stab at that? Certainly. In 2022, we experienced a shift. Power supply cost, as most of our cooperative friends probably know, experienced a significant increase. How did we weather through that, no pun intended here, is we worked through the process of looking at our plan, looking at what our ratios meant, looking at what our debt service coverage components times interest earned, as I touched on, looked at our modified equity or distribution equity as some of our other member co-ops measure, and then communicated to our board, what rate adjustments do we need to make? By rate adjustments, I mean, is it power cost adjustment? Is it our kilowatt hour rate? Is it our fixed charge? Do we have to adjust that? And if so, by how much and what does that look like? Further than it's communicating in a way to our board that hits on those key points and also making sure that we understand from an internal finance perspective that we are not causing ourselves undue challenges in the future. That's why we talk about a long range plan. So yes, we can make near term, in this case, adjustments in 2022, that's gonna cause us challenges potentially in 2023 and beyond. That is absolutely what we do not wanna do. It is consistency throughout our structure, communication to our board, communication to our members to ensure that everyone that is involved understands what we're doing, why we're doing it, 
and what success looks like. And I'll turn it over to you, Tim, for additional. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think at the, at the time of this recording, which is in the middle of August 2023, our board strategic planning session is next week. We are going to be describing to them exactly the sort of inflection point, Christine, I think your phrase was something along the lines of rapid change, right? How do you course correct amid rapid change? We are going to present numbers to them based on this long-term study that says the number of EVs on our lines will probably grow 10 to 14 times their current level, which is roughly 1,000, in the next 15 years. Now, bear in mind, a single EV increases residential load by about 30%. So think about that. If you're going from 1,000 to 10 or 14 times as much, that's 10,000 or 14,000, depends upon the speed, 15 years from now. Now, especially if they plug in on peak, imagine its impact on your distribution system and your distribution infrastructure. Can our current transformers say in a suburban subdivision, handle six or eight EVs plugged in at the same time. Are we built for that? Are our feeder lines scaled for that? Are our substations scaled for that? And if they're not, we can't make those changes two years ahead of time. We have to do that change seven or eight years ahead of time to make all the financing work, to have enough construction crews, to make sure we're getting city permits, say for expansions of substations or for any of the construction work we do. And so you have to have a forward leaning point of view around how quickly you can afford all of that. Well, that's the world we're in right now. In fact, in the next 15 years, we anticipate that the total load on our system will almost double, not quite, but almost double. And that is short of any major new location, say, of a large commercial industrial customer that could change that. That's simply looking at current trends, current adoption rates for EV, the current population built out, the current uh, number of businesses that will build in our area on the light. So if we're doubling in 15 years, we need an infrastructure plan that can accommodate that. Go ahead, Christy. I'm curious because we are talking a lot from here out to the future, but for co-ops that might be saying, well, I only have one or two EVs on my line, maybe coming from a different perspective. When did you start looking at this as this is happening in our area from a historical perspective of tracking this? You've done a lot of work and you're doing a lot of work to project the trends. What did that look like to get up to this point? Yeah, so it's a great point. Five years ago is really when we began our EV strategy in earnest, roughly 2018. It goes to the point that you made before in your last question. What do you do when something quickly changes? What was our strategic challenge five years ago? It was flat or declining energy sales. Flat or declining. We had had 10 years of more or less flat, actually slightly declining, certainly declining on a per member basis, per consumer basis, electric load. And what that forces you to do then is spread all of your fixed costs, your non-variable costs over fewer billing units. That is very, very challenging. What is our challenge today, just five years later? Are we going to be able to keep up with the pace of growth? Now that is a huge strategic shift in five years. The reason we did it initially is to say, 
EVs become a great low growth opportunity. They, as I mentioned a moment ago, add 30% a single EV to the typical residential energy use at a home. Let's encourage that. Now today, the challenge is almost the opposite, is can we manage the size and scale of that growth? Certainly what we anticipated. Even if you're a smaller, say more rural system where EVs are out of ways, I'd say start having those conversations now. Those trends will uh, impact you and may not do it quite at the speed of, say, some of us who have more of a suburban membership or are closer to a metro center, but eventually it will. And you're still going to have to need to approach it from the same basic premise of how do we do this just in time, but not too early and definitely not too late. So Tim has touched on some great points here, and we've talked a lot about theory, a lot about, you know, what is our plan? And people may be saying, okay, right hand, what are you actually going to do? So for us, Tim's talked about our strategy map. Another tool that we have is F5, which is build financial flexibility. Right. This is actually setting resources aside for key items. One is going to be around the growth of EVs. Two is around additional infrastructure that we may need. And three is around if there's a storm that occurs, a blowdown event, something of that nature. That right. is allowing us to be nimble. And you'll hear us use that a lot in our organization. It's about being nimble. So as we know, EVs are going to come, they're going to grow. The question is, when are they going to grow? How quickly? Tim's talked about the hockey stick. Um, that hockey stick has shifted over the last few years. So for us is how are we going to be able to be proactive when the need occurs? Again, like Tim touched on, we must have infrastructure in place when those several EVs move into that neighborhood and need to charge. We cannot have a reliability issue there. So for us, it's being nimble. It's having dollars set aside whether that's the equity component, whether that's having existing cash resources to pay for it as well. So nimble flexibility, that's what's crucial for us. And we're doing that by setting those dollars aside. I love that having strategy is great, but you're talking to the point of what do you do? You know, what, yeah, what's the point. physical piece to that? You're actually moving forward, making the change happen. So let me t- share with what that looks like to a board. So Brian talked about our F5, which we call our reserved equity fund which now we have several million dollars in it to help us accommodate this. But to a board, the crucial point is you only have two sources of funding, right? You have your membership and you have debt. So what do you want to do? If you don't want to have to take out debt or you are going to take out less debt, then you need to take it from your members. And the point is that ultimately has to be supported in your rate structure. So if you want a fund to develop, you better start way ahead of time, right? You can't build a large war chest to take on uh, infrastructure planning, to buy down debt, to maintain the assets, to manage the requirements of your covenant unless you have enough time and preparation to do so. Brian talked about it. He was our champion of creating Again, what we call that reserved equity fund, just think about that as our savings bank to handle issues like this. And it's not ultimately meant to finance them. It's simply meant to serve as a shock absorber, a cushion, and a optimizer between debt and what we directly spend uh, each year out of our uh, revenue dollars so that we can maintain those ratios. So it's just another tool, an important tool in the the toolbox. Tim's absolutely correct. And this rising interest rate environment, 
it's crucial for us to have cash on hand. And what are we doing about it? Instead of taking on as much debt here in the future, right. we're going to use some of those that reserved equity to buy down, if you will, some of that initial debt in, that we would take on. So that's going to help us. Again, we're not going to be financing it entirely internally, anything of that nature. Our U.S. is still one of our primary funders for debt that we have around infrastructure. Another tool that we're looking at here, I'm sure as everyone else is, is looking at those federal dollars that are available to us. So Tim touched on, we can look to our members, we can look to our, our lenders Great here point. for debt, and we can also look at those federal dollars that are available. So we've worked and partnered with others here to try to uh, realize some of those dollars in that cost sharing programs that are out there. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and we participated along with, I, I wanna say more than 50 systems in the upper mid Midwest on the GRIP grant, which many on the podcast would be familiar with, but they're multi-billions through a, an alphabet soup of federal government programs. And, and Brian is making a great point. Every dollar you can leverage out of any of those federal pools is a dollar we don't have to finance through our members or through debt. It becomes a huge advantage, and I know many across the country are taking advantage of trying to go out and capture dollars in those streams, but it's a great point. That's part of the strategy, too. One other thing that you touched on a little bit earlier that I want to go back around to is your membership. What you do to keep them informed of all of this. Do you have to, on the front end, tell them about what's coming down the line, all of the changes that you're making, if it might impact them, if you're looking at potentially increasing rates, because that might be something that affects them? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a great point. And short answer is yes. We we make infrastructure planning and, and, and actually infrastructure completion a key part of our communication strategy. So for example, right now we are in the finishing stages of completing uh, what we call our Corcoran 2 substation, a brand new substation on a five acre site in one of the growing communities in our service area. We've had essentially a time-lapse video uh, from a camera showing the construction of that site. And it's, it's available, we take pictures of it, we promote it in our newsletter. And that's not just important to the membership, but ultimately the membership has confidence in distribution systems that make regular ongoing investments in the infrastructure. They view it as you're part of creating the necessary conditions under which I'm gonna get long-term reliability. That's absolutely crucial. It also explains why some of the rates are where they are. That was the point you just made, Christine. Now, it's also crucial for other stakeholders, cities, planning commissions, city councils, city staff, stakeholders who may have a strong point of view about where substations should be sited, uh, when and where we ought to put in other infrastructure. You're right. We don't want to keep our infrastructure plan simply as an internal consideration around how do we finance it. We are on an ongoing, constant basis, want to communicate, take pictures, show videos, broadly communicate through information packets and meetings and the like, uh, what we're doing to build our infrastructure. It's a great point. You just touched on something else that I hadn't even thought of too, your stakeholders, right? In terms of right. where is this infrastructure going? The more infrastructure you potentially put in, substations, that those relationships are key, I'm assuming. That's absolutely right. And it's really important, and some will identify with this, and here's where we are. We're already a growing system. And so we're putting in roughly between 1,000 and 1,200 services a year mostly residential, though some uh, commercial and some commercial at scale. 
Now add to that all of the typical replacements uh, that we do. So most systems, for example, replace poles, say, on a 50-year basis. Maybe they change out transformers on a 30-year basis. So we're doing that, but we also have the added challenge of changing now 40 and almost 50-year-old underground systems don't have any experience with doing that. We've never been where we are today on the generation of replacing first generation underground. And so we have a very specific strategy to identify the feeder lines that we think are most sensitive, maybe most at risk. Uh, we call it unjacketed cable, which many on the line would be familiar. It doesn't have a fiberglass coating along it. It might have been put in in the late 70s or 80s. So we have our priority list for that. Now, that's just to stay in the game. That's just to keep reliability in place, not to mention all the technology and infrastructure investments uh, that go on top of that. So this is a really big deal. Let me ask you about that. You have quite extensive experience with undergrounding lines. Right. How do you go about calling the balls and strikes on whether it's overhead or underground, yep. whether you're converting or you're building new lines? What's that like? We actually have a very detailed priority matrix, <laughs> and it looks at things like age of the equipment. It looks at the outage history. It looks like the number of members on that line. It talks about the cost comparison of what it would take, say, to convert from overhead to underground. It is actually a list of, I would say, yeah, probably just shy of a dozen different items that helps us evaluate score, and then ultimately select the projects that work the best. So this is not a kind of, you know, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna estimate and, and call it good enough. We put that through a very robust analysis to make sure the strongest, most meritorious projects come to the top. Brian, do you want to talk about that? You're, you're heavily involved in that whole process. So yes, Tim is correct on what he's outlined. In addition, what we look at is the impact. He mentioned about you know the number of members. So if we see that there's a replacement that needs to occur that impacts two members, we're most likely gonna score that much lower on the priority Great list point. in our matrix. Whereas if we see something that's a high impact around our reliability. So again, if you're one of those two members that their power goes out, they're not gonna be as thrilled about that. But however, we look at impact across the organization and our territory more specifically with that. I think that's a great viewpoint, and you've put it so succinctly that it's very easy to understand. Good. Brian or Tim, either of you could take this question, the labor of all of this and how that fits into the picture. Sure. Talking about increasing costs of labor, the availability of labor, what does that look like on this infrastructure planning? Go ahead, Brian. Right. Thank you. So, yes, we absolutely look at those components. So, first when we look at the infrastructure build that needs to occur, when we plan for this, we look at, do we have a staff in-house that can engineer this process, can work through our other contractors and have this installed? Second, we look at the long-term impacts of this, the operational components. So as we know, when infrastructure goes in the ground, it needs to be maintained. We look at that from that component as well as future staffing needs too. So we don't always just add staff. We look at overtime costs. We look at how that compares to our key ratio trend analysis with our other cooperatives in the system. So that's really important to us too. It's not just what goes in the ground. It's looking through the life cycle and then the impact as we move to replacement of that infrastructure in that second process. 
No, it's a great point. And the only thing I'd add to it is we're constantly evaluating, do we have the right staff to execute this construction work plan? If we don't, are we prepared to add to our headcount? Maybe we see a three or five year blip or large scale uptick in construction, in which case we might say, no, we'd rather go with contractors. But to the point of your question, all of this infrastructure ends up in the ground because somebody put it there. And we, just like we evaluate projects top to the bottom around what has the biggest bang for the buck, we're always evaluating what is the optimal labor mix? Is it internal? It's external? It's some combination and why? So it, it's a great point and it's part of the solve for this uh, big long-term infrastructure picture is what is your mix of internal and external labor and what kind of capabilities do you want internally versus what do you want to shop out? Yes, I agree with Tim on all of those points. Another thing we look at is in the budgeting process. We budget not just for straight time, but overtime. And we look at those overtime budgets by employee. And one of the first questions we ask our operational folks is, how does this overtime look? Any concerns around safety? We want to make sure everyone comes home the same way, <laughs> goes home the same way that they came into work that day. Yeah. That's, that's crucial to us. And that's how we're measuring this too. First, from our employee standpoint around safety. Second, then around what is the optimal mix for us to achieve success in the most cost-effective manner? Brian and Tim, thank you so much for your time today. But before I let you go, could you share with me your top three tips for other executives who are working on infrastructure planning? The first thing I would say, the first priority I would say to management teams and boards is consider capital planning slash infrastructure planning a tier one priority, a tier one priority. It is going to be what allows you to serve your members long term. It's critical to safe, affordable, reliable power. But it's also a tier one priority in the sense that it is an increasing percentage of many systems budgets. Again, right, Hennepin, to give you a sense of scale, $120 million electric business. The capital and infrastructure planning is about $20 million and growing. So it is a huge chunk of the pie. So that's number one. Number two is I would say plan ahead. You can't start too early. Most people feel they run out of time. And imagine the cost if you don't plan ahead of time. Now you're trying to stuff a lot more dollars and a lot more constricted work plan and try to get it all accomplished in a really tight window. So second thing is to plan ahead. And third is I would generally say what we said at the top of this, consider capital infrastructure planning a team sport. It should not be relegated just to the operations and engineering team with some support from your finance group. Uh, this ought to be a planning effort across your businesses. You ought to be informing your, your boards about it early, talking about it in your management teams, making sure everybody on your senior executive team understands its implications and their importance in the process of that forward plan. Absolutely. I had similar items that Tim had just in a little different order. First, mine was communicate and get buy-in. Just yes, like Tim right. said, we need to start within our organization, communicate what is our long-range plan, what is our capital planning process, and get that buy-in. That truly helps us build from within our organization through to our board, and that way it's a consistent message to our board so that way they know that we understand our process thoroughly. 
just like Tim said, have a plan. It may seem obvious, but right. have a plan, even if it's basic. Don't go grandiose and try to build out some massive plan if you don't have one. Start small, build with the key components that you have around reliability and safety for your members. Make sure that we have that piece, then build out. Sometimes people try to overbuild and think this is too much of a daunting task. Start small, think about the things that matter and work from there. And finally, to be nimble. We know one thing, the plan that we built yesterday is gonna to change tomorrow. We know that that is the constant that is in our plan. And we need to make sure that we are able to be nimble, to make adjustments as situations change, as information changes, and as projects get pushed further down the road or move sooner than we yeah, anticipated. Right. So it works both ways here. Have that flexibility. Don't have it etched in stone. Look at parameters around what you're doing to be successful in that planning. Definitely appreciate your insights. And I know other executive leaders will have great takeaways from that. You've mentioned that team planning aspect. And I think that's one thing that repeatedly came up uh, is just how important and critical that was. And the fact that that really cascades into the success of this. And with that, I thank you for joining me here today. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, CFC. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for the opportunity today. On our next episode of Solutions Cast, we will bring you part two of infrastructure planning as a team sport. We will be speaking with two more players from the Wright Hennepin team who bring their expertise in long term technology and engineering planning. Be sure to subscribe to CFC Solutions Cast on your favorite podcast app to receive the latest episodes directly to your mobile device. Solutions Cast is a production of CFC. Thank you.